0: Hey, good to be here with you all. My name is Justin, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we are in James chapter 3, so if you want to turn there, we had a little, uh, some issues this morning. Um, uh, if you don't know, I, I preach the nine o'clock in Arcadia, and then the ten o'clock here in Tempe, and then and the eleven o'clock back in Arcadia. So I preach the nine, walk off stage, into a car, drive here, walk on stage, preach again, and do the same thing back in Arcadia. And as long as I keep it to 45 minutes or so, 50 minutes at the most, I'm good. So when I go an hour, it's bad. And so I came here, and there was extra songs and confusion, and Garth ended up doing some stand-up, I think, at one point, and, uh, and then it, it, just, it just, everything went bad from there. And so now what's good about the rest of the night is I have no limitations, I don't have to go anywhere, I, all I have to do is be done by 7 o'clock, all right? So, um, so we're going to do the whole sermon now uh, instead of just a fraction that, that took me an hour, Okay. okay some fear on your eyes. I like it. Um, We're talking about wisdom tonight, and wisdom is kind of one of those weird kind of nebulous ideas. What is wisdom? And I've heard wisdom defined as the right application of knowledge, okay? So we all have some knowledge. It's transitioning that knowledge into some decision, uh, some application, some choice in your life, and doing that effectively. Doing that uh, is, is wisdom, apparently. I want to I take it just a, maybe a step further than that and really look at what that mechanism, wh- how, does, how does ideas, how does knowledge transition into application? What, what do you have to be able to see? What, what do you have to be able to know um, to be able to make that transition drive? way. Okay. And James is going to juxtapose heavenly wisdom, godly wisdom with with earthly wisdom and, and, and kind of talk about what the fruit of each of those is. So I, I want to define wisdom this way. Okay? Just just for the sake of our purposes this evening. Wisdom is being able to see all of the information, see all of the knowledge um, that's in a given situation. So all the knowledge you have um, is applied to a certain context. Okay. So what I mean by that is um, when you're going to make a a decision for what car you want to buy, you you only bring your car knowledge with you and you're only synthesizing that car knowledge, right? When you are picking a a wife or, or a husband, you don't bring your car knowledge into it you shouldn't bring your car knowledge into it. It's like, well, oh, good transmission, I'm in, right? So shouldn't go that way, okay? So you, you're filtering, so it's a certain set of, of knowledge, certain set of ideas that you bring into it. And it's the ability to synthesize those ideas, to see relationship between them, see correlation, see causality um, that allows you to take this kind of disparate mess of knowledge and, and form it into something meaningful, something good, something pure, something beautiful. Okay, so let me give you two examples um, that, that I hope will connect to two different types of people in the room. One, music example for the artsy folk. So there is a, a finite amount of musical notes in, in a world, right? And so um, when, when a musician sits down to make music, to play music, there, there is only a certain amount of notes that are available to that person. Now, I said that at the 9 and the 10, and then I started to say it at the 11, and our worship pastor in Arcadia, Sean Johnson, was down in the front row, and I kind of said, that's right, isn't it? You know, like I'd been saying it for three services and wasn't totally sure it was right. I was pretty sure. So it's right, because he said so. Um, so there, every musician has access to the same amount of notes, the same notes, right? Like every musician, all the people up here, they know all the notes, right? Or some of them over there maybe don't, but, but there, there are there are just a finite amount of notes. Now, if you took all of those notes and just put them in a bag and randomly pulled out those notes and then strung them together in, in musical form and played those notes, it would be terrible, right? If you added to that a, a random assortment of words, it, it would just be gibberish, it wouldn't make sense, it would, be, it would just be all bad, okay? But when a musician who has the wisdom to be able to see the relationship between those musical notes, to see relationship between music and words, um, can put them together in, in a way that correlates, um, it can create something transcendent, right? So we can hear a song and, and be kind of moved emotionally simply by um, the right ordering of that knowledge, the ability to put those notes in the proper order um, with, with the right relationship, with the right words can create moments of transcendence. So we all have songs that when they come on the radio, we go, shh, and we, we turn up the, turn up the, and we go, oh my gosh, this is so good, right? It, it moves us in some way, okay? So um, I, I could listen to the Beatles' White Album over and over and over and over and over and over, and over right? Because it's, from, from the Lord. And so there, there, was, there was a moment when, when there was all this grab bag of notes and words and John and Paul, a little bit of George, not much Ringo, um, put together, put those notes and words together to create music, beautiful music that, that creates something, something significant. So any musician that, that knows the notes can play that Okay. But it takes a level of wisdom, a level of insight, to see how it all fits together, to see how it all works, and create something significant. Okay, so that's illustration number one. Illustration number two. Um, this this same idea applies in sports. Um, of the three major sports, I, I think, uh, between football, baseball, and basketball, I think basketball provides the best illustration of this because you've got five guys on one team, kind of constant motion, working together, passing, picking, cutting, all, all of this to create an end goal of scoring, scoring points. Okay? Um, in basketball, I, I think the wisest basketball player I've ever seen in my life is Steve Nash, right? Um, he, he's got some things going on off-court. So um, on-court, wisest guy. Um, uh, I've ever seen. Okay. He has the ability, you you get the sense when he's dribbling down the court that he just knows how the next 24 seconds are going to play out. He just sees it. He knows that if he, he has the ball and he dribbles over here, his defender will come with him. Um, another defender will come up, you know, kind of the big guy's defender may, may come up there, and he can pass it down to some unskilled big man to go, Ooh, right, like that, that unskilled big guy can't do anything else, but, but catch and, okay, so Nash knows that if I go over here and this guy does that and that guy does that, it's going to create an opening for me to pass it to him to score. He just sees it. He just sees it. He, he sees what's happening. He takes all of the information that is completely um, available to everyone else on the court, but he can process it in such a way um, that creates beauty, creates something meaningful. It creates, uh, it creates purpose achieved. Okay? So same information, processed in a different way, with, with a different type of wisdom the ability to see the relationship, the correlation, the causality between those those kind of disparate ideas. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. See, I ask questions, you respond. It's basic human interaction. Okay. So, we it's wisdom is the ability to take information, process it in such a way um, that that a good outcome is the result. All right, so that, that's going to be our working definition of wisdom tonight. Um, so let's get in. James 3, 13. We see this passage as you turn in there, um, just a, really a continuation of last week's passage where James was challenging those who aspired to be teachers and simply said, listen, if you want to be a teacher, um, you'd better better slow down and be aware that the words that you say, the influence that you have, um, has an equal and opposite amount of accountability that comes with it. So specifically to teachers, because teachers have perhaps a greater level of influence um, as as we, in, in the immediate context, as we open the word of God and say, this is what God says, this is what the Bible says, there's a level of like, well, somebody's listening to that, right? So we, we talked about how um, when, when James was writing this, there were essentially two forms of communication. Verbal communication, which didn't have the aid of this kind of Britney Spears, Garth Brooks thing I've got going here. Um, so, so that verbal communication was, was much smaller, much more intimate. Um, that or written communication. Now, that was largely the only two forms of communication available to James's readers. And so when he wrote this, it was certainly true. Um, now it's even more true. As digital media has multiplied uh, across our world, social media has uh, enabled us to have influence and communication at our fingertips at all times, right? So last week when I was talking about this in Gilbert, um, I had checked my Facebook page um, right before I went on stage and saw that I had 1,559 friends on facebook i know like four of them um but 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 they're my friends and so anytime i type out my pithy little insights on the world there are there are literally people from across the globe being influenced by by what i say sometimes a little sometimes maybe a lot but influenced to some degree and then one day i will stand before god and god will say you said that 1500 almost 1600 people heard it give me an account for that why did you disparage that person in that, in that public setting? Why did you call that entire group of people ignorant or uneducated? What, it, what, that was the implication, the way that you derided that idea. Why did you do that? You influenced them. They did this as a result. You are going to be held accountable for that. Jesus in Matthew 12 takes the next step and says, in fact, every careless word will be held accountable for every." Careless word we speak. Okay, so the power of words, the power of influence um, that that he's speaking to, that James is speaking to. Now that just continues right in here as he in verse 13 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Calling out kind of those people who would be so bold as to say, I should be a teacher. I should be a leader. I should influence people, which we at least implicitly say every time we tweet, every time we Facebook, every time we speak, we're saying, I I have something important enough to say to communicate to you. There's some level of wisdom, some level of understanding, there's some level of value in me telling you um, what I ate for lunch. Okay, so, so there, there, there's kind of a, a, at least an implicit understanding that those who influence, are, are kind of self-identifying as wiser, understanding, to some degree, and so he is calling out those wise and understanding people and saying this: by his good work, or by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So he goes, you're wise, you're understanding. You should be an influencer. You should be a teacher. Great. Here's what we're going to do. For the next, let's say, six months, 12 months maybe, um, I, we're just going to watch your life. We're just going to look at the decisions that you make and, and the outcome of those decisions. We're, we're going we're to look at your works. We're going to look at your conduct. And then based upon what we see in your life, we're going to draw conclusions about how wise you really are. So, don't tell me how wise you are, I'm just going to watch your life. This is in many ways the presupposition that we bring into our elder process, right? That's why we have a two-year-long elder process. People can fake holiness for about nine days, right? After that, they are who they are, okay? So you, you you can start to see some of the imperfections, some of the immaturity over a long span of time. So James goes, all right, you think you're wise and you want to be a teacher? Cool. Let's just watch your life. The implications of the decisions that you make will tell us how wise you actually are. Now, um, there is a great number of us who do not like this idea whatsoever. Because it implies that I am responsible for the outcomes of my life. Because we would all be start start to think about, oh man, um, you know, my financial world is not totally together right now. I've got these relationships um, that are they're kind of hanging out there. I, I I don't have a great relationship with my parents. My my job situation's tenuous. There's there's something in our lives that might be like, I, I don't know that I want them looking into that, and that be a reflection on, on me and on my wisdom and on my ability to to lead and influence and teach. Because what we, what we really don't like is, is having to take responsibility for, for the bad things in our life. We, we tend to push off that, that responsibility, that accountability, by saying things like, well, you know, things just go bad in this world. Not, not everything works out all the time. People lose jobs, um, relationships break up, relationships get strained. That's just, that's just life. That's not my fault, necessarily. It's just, it's just a product of life. Or we get more specific with, with our with our rejection of responsibility by saying, well, no, I, I lost that job because my boss was a jerk. It was, it was about politics, man. I, I was the best guy there, but this guy was always sucking up to the boss. It was just politics. That, that's why I got fired. That, that relationship didn't work out because she was selfish. She, she was selfish, and so she left, and it's probably, it's probably better that way. So we push off the, the responsibility of the decisions that we make. And we do this in a number of different ways. So James simply says, listen, we'll just watch your life for a while. Watch the outcome of your way of life. Watch the outcome of your conduct. And just then we'll make some judgments about how wise you really are. And then what James is going to do is going to juxtapose um, these two different types of wisdom. And and he's going to say, listen, as we're looking into your life, um, we're going to to kind of look for these two things. A a real wisdom, a godly wisdom, or or maybe more of an earthly wisdom. So he starts with earthly wisdom. Verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Now, I love James because he always deals with real practical issues, real hands and feet kind of um, real practical, applicable kind of issues. But he knows that everything that happens out here, everything that you say, everything that you do with your hands, your feet, just your life is always 100 times out of 100, a product of what's going on in here. So he says, listen, if the outcome of your life kind of is going this way, it's potentially because you are motivated by, you are moved by, and he gives us two things, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, that, that that's what moves people. He goes, that is not godly wisdom. That wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, and we'll kind of unpack those in a minute because it, this this worldly wisdom produces a heart motivation that is primarily bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, and that is what makes you want to be a teacher it 's what makes you want to be an influencer or a leader it makes it 's what makes you want to be a, a successful in business, a good parent, a good husband, a good wife. There are motivations that can be for good things, but but really bad going on in here. So he says too. And um, one Bible commentator described bitter jealousy this way: He says it regards its opponents as enemies to be annihilated, rather than as friends to be persuaded. Okay, so someone who is moved by bitter jealousy and has a desire to be a teacher, desire to be uh, successful in business, desire to be a good mom, a good dad, whatever the case may be. When they're motivated by bitter jealousy, it's I want to be a teacher so that I can show my dad that I can make something of myself. I, I, I want to um, be good in business. I want to be successful in business. I want to get that promotion, not for the good of the company, not for even for just the good of my own life. I want to get that promotion because I want to step on him on the way there. I, I want him to know that I'm better than he is. I, I want to be a really good mom to stick it to my mom. That's a really bad reason to want to be a good mom. That's the kind of heart motivation that worldly wisdom produces in us. Not just desire to be great, not just a desire to, to pursue and to be, we'll get to ambition in a minute, not just a desire to accomplish whatever lays ahead, not, not seeing the way the world works and, and, and kind of functioning, putting together those, those pieces of knowledge and those ideas, not synthesizing those things for the sake of something better, it's for the sake of ourselves and our own ends. For the sake of defeating someone else, overcoming someone else, proving something to someone else. And then he says about selfish ambition, he says, it is, in the end, more eager to display itself than to display the truth. And it is interested more in the victory of its own opinions than in the victory of the truth. So um, in the immediate context of wanting to be a teacher, he goes, um, those of you who want to be a teacher, but you argue and fight with people, not so that we can all um, be closer to the truth, but so that you can be right. He goes, that's, that's not wisdom. That's not wisdom from above. That's, that's earthly wisdom. Your, your desire is not for the good of the community, the good of the church, the good of the city, the good of your family. Your desire is for you to be right for you to be good, for you to be celebrated. So you want to be a teacher so that you can have a place of importance, not because you want to build up the body. You want to be good in business so that you can be wealthy, you can be satisfied, you can be well thought of, not for the sake of the economy, the sake of the community, the sake of your family, the sake of something bigger. Okay, so if we can go back to that um, Nash illustration, this would be the difference between Steve Nash and if you'll go back into son's lore with me, Stefan Marbury okay? Um, Stefan Marbury gave himself the nickname Starbury, okay? When you give yourself nicknames, that's bad. That's a bad sign, right? Um, The difference between Nash and Marbury is um, Marbury wanted to be the guy. Marbury had to be this guy with who scored the most points at the end of the game. He had to get his 25 or 30. This is Marbury, it's Allen Iverson, it's Carmelo Anthony. They've got to be the guy. Nash doesn't have to be the highest scorer and often isn't. In fact, a lot of times when he is, the Suns lose because that, that's, that's not his greatest contribution to the team. Nash could score 25, 30, nine if he wanted He's one of the best shooters in the history of the NBA. If he took the shots that those guys took, he could lead the team in scoring. He could make more money for himself. He could be in the limelight more often, but he doesn't. He passes the ball. He sets up his teammates and is very rarely the highest scoring player in the team. But he leads the NBA in assists. He knows that his role on the team, he's self-aware enough to know my team is better when I am bringing defenders to myself, passing so that big guys can just dunk because that's all they can do, okay? So if, if that's what will help my team get better, that, that's what I'll do. Okay, so that, that's the difference between Nash and Marbury. It's the difference between um, the musician that, that tries to create a great song and the musician that just needs a ripping solo every song. Okay, so he, he says, listen, The issue here is not ambition. Please, don't lose ambition. Don't stop being ambitious. Don't stop trying to be the best you can possibly be, as successful as you can possibly be. Do not lose ambition. But selfish ambition is a reflection of worldly wisdom and not godly wisdom. Okay. Now, he describes this worldly wisdom with three words. He says, "For word, uh, this is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Earthly, he just used to juxtapose between the wisdom that comes from above, so earthly instead of heavenly. But this word, unspiritual, is a really interesting word. Um, and, a, and if you do a kind of a biblical theology or systematic theology of human nature, you'll see that the scriptures describe us as as kind of three parts: body, soul, and spirit." And it's thought that it's the spirit, at least in biblical language, it's spirit, um, that separates us from the animals. So the animals have, um, soul being kind of just cognitive awareness, right? Um, and, and the, and the body being, um, the body. And so, um, that animals kind of have both of those things, but humanity has kind of that spirit breathed into it by God that makes us separate. So what James says here is this, this isn't just an, a not divine wisdom it's actually not even human. It's subhuman. It's animalistic. This desire to be, number one, this desire to have it your way and to be the guy that gets what you want, um, your desire to crush these other people, that motive, is, it's not even human. It's animalistic. And so um, I got a video sent to me the other day, which is, was great. It was a, like a, a, a fast motion video of a dead elephant in the Sahara decomposing great. We watched it at family dinner. And um, what, what it would show is during the day that the sun would beat down on it and flies and, and, and water, and it would kind of slowly degrade it. But at night, these hyenas would come in, and, and there was occasionally lions would scare them off. But this pack of hyenas, and there was like five or six hyenas. Now, um, the, a hyena is like this big. It's like a dog size large, you know, basically. So it's about this big. Elephants are uh, bigger okay and so there was like five or six hyenas they very very easily could have come in and gone all right Jim you take the back leg uh Stan you got the trunk I'll go ahead on this back you know this front leg we'll just we'll just be good you stick to your part if you get hungry ask nicely and we'll, we'll deal with it right so um they, they didn't do that, though, shockingly. Um, what, what would happen is um, Stan would be on the hind leg and eating and eating and, eat and kind of be swallowing, look up, see the trunk, and be like, trunk looks good. Go over, fight Roger for the trunk, and they would spend just as much time fighting each other as they would eating the elephant. And then he'd be, you know, maybe he'd win and start eating the trunk, and be like, no, nah, not as good as the leg. But then Sally's already on the leg, and so he's not it was just bad. This animalistic desire to have what you want rather than being able to see the bigger picture, to use wisdom to see what's going on and go, hey, I, I can be content here. This is a good spot for me. I mean, even better illustration this is, is my daughter. Um, when, when she is um, with her friends, um, Garth's daughter and my daughter and, and one of our other friend's daughter, they're all like within a couple of weeks of each other, and, and they will be playing together, and, and they've got 14,000 toys in this room. They're, I mean, it's, it's neck deep in toys, and, and they will have, my daughter Lily will have a toy and you know, a little, I don't know, fake computer or an old cell phone, and she'll look over and see Lila, Garth's daughter, ha- have something that is not cooler. Usually dumber, um, but Lila's got it, and so she'll walk over, take it, bam, and and just and want it, steal it from her. When when literally there are thousands of toys. I mean, we're just dumping truckloads of toys into this room, but she wants the one she has. They can't just she can't just keep peace, keep harmony, take a back seat, be patient to be able to see all of the things going around, all the ideas, all the concepts, all the toys and be able to live harmoniously. Hyenas can't do it. Little girls can't do it. It's, it's not even human. It's animalist. It's subhuman. So we are waiting patiently for our girls to become human (laughs) and, and to be able to interact with some wisdom. Okay. So This is the idea, that that this kind of wisdom is earthly, not divine. It's animalistic, not even human, and it's demonic. Okay, Now, demonic may seem like, wow, that's kind of a sensational word. Aren't we kind of past that in our post-religious, post-Christian, rationalistic, materialistic, scientific society? Well, we'd better not be. We'd better not be. And it's it's probably about time for some of us to to just get over that mental hurdle, or at least attempt to get over that mental hurdle, um, that there really is a a thing called Satan, and there really are demons, and they are not particularly fond of you. They want you to be destroyed. They want you to, to experience pain and suffering and destruction and chaos and disorder. And so when James says, listen, um, this wisdom that's motivated by selfish ambition and bitter jealousy, this comes from Satan. Satan wants you to be bitter and jealous. Satan wants you to have a selfish ambition. Satan wants you to want to stick it to your mom because she, he knows that that will create a horrible relationship between you and your mom. It'll create disunity, disorder, fractured relationship, and that's what he wants, because he knows God created us for unity, for community, that we need each other. He created us to love one another. And so when he can create fracture and disunity, he wins. So Satan says, listen, or James says, listen, it, if your wisdom is motivated by your, your ability to decipher the world, your desire to take concepts and, and create a world out of them, create beauty out of them, is motivated by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition... It's, it's from Satan. It's being shaped. The way that you see the world, the way that you put together these ideas is being shaped by Satan and it produces exactly what Satan wants, which is verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. James just said, and then I'm going to say it really clearly in a second here. If your wisdom, if your ordering of your world, if your decision-making process, if the way that you synthesize information is motivated by bitter jealousy and, and uh, a selfish ambition, and therefore it is an ungodly wisdom, is a demonic wisdom, it will produce in your life disorder, which just means chaos, destruction, brokenness, fractured relationships, and then a junk drawer term of every vile practice. Just all bad. Now, let me say that really clearly. Most of the crap in your life is the direct result of your bad decisions. Most, there's exceptions here and there when other people make bad decisions that hurt you, but most, the vast majority of the brokenness, the pain, The suffering, the crap of life is the result of you ordering your universe based upon an ungodly wisdom. Not following the the order of the God who ordered the universe results in brokenness, pain, suffering, every vile practice. It's very simple. we don't like this idea. We push back against this idea. But I've been a pastor now for 10, 11 years. I've done a fair amount of counseling over those times, sat down with a fair amount of people who were in bad spots, and it becomes pretty obvious pretty quickly that their bad spot is the result of a very specific bad decision that was not in line with the wisdom of God, but was right in line with the wisdom that is earthly unspiritual and demonic so i sit down with a couple and they say hey we're not married she's pregnant okay um you guys are living together right yeah um so every night you go to sleep next to um, a beautiful woman who you're very attracted to and love and lay in bed together night after night after night do you think that decision could have contributed to her getting pregnant yeah okay um, you're a man, right? Yes. You're, and you're a woman, okay. You, you're into women, right? Yeah, okay. You, you lay next to a woman that you're into mostly naked every night, and you don't think that maybe that decision contributed to her getting pregnant? No. Do you understand how babies are made? <laughs> someone comes in and says, um, you know, I lost my job. I've got, I'm in just bad financial position right now. I I don't know what I'm going to do. Okay. Um, Had you been working hard? Well, I get sick a lot and uh, I love vacations. I love to travel. I love to see the world. I love to do this. So, you know, I I was was putting in a solid 30, 35 hours a week. Okay. So you have a full-time job, your paid salary full-time you're sick a lot. You take a lot of sick days. And you travel and you go vacation. And, and maybe even when you're there, you're, you're kind of planning your next vacation. Yeah. Do you think any of that could have contributed to you getting fired? No, no, no. My boss is a jerk, man. He just didn't like me. Uh-huh. I don't like you much either. Um, <laughs> there might have been a reason he didn't like you because you're a bad employee. You're, you're a lazy worker. Okay. Maybe, just maybe, your bad decisions resulted in your bad outcomes. Okay. And, and, and the sooner that we can just acknowledge that, acknowledge the truth of most of our bad outcomes, most of the crap we deal with in our life is the direct result of bad decisions we made, decisions where we ordered our life based on a different wisdom, the sooner we can admit that, the sooner we can start making changes, the sooner we can start growing in godly wisdom and, and clean up some of, that, some of that pain and some of that brokenness and some of that suffering. I mean, just, just bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. I see people who come in and go, we're just in bad shape financially. We're in debt. Um, we, we don't have a ton of money coming in. We're up to our ears. The creditors are coming. And the next time I see them, they've got new $50 jeans. It's like you don't have money, you're asking the church to help you with money, which we, are, we would love to be able to do, but if you keep spending money and going into debt, you have thousands of dollars in credit card debt, and yet you continue to spend money on stuff you don't need. That's stupid. That's foolish. That, that is not using godly wisdom to order your life. And so, Yes, you're up to your ears in credit card debt because you continue to make bad decisions. Okay, so James is just laying it out real simple. If you follow ungodly wisdom, you will end up in a place that's full of disorder, chaos, brokenness, and then just every, everything bad, every vile practice. But there's an alternative. Verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Now you should go back and, and think about and dwell on and meditate on each of these descriptions of what of what godly wisdom is. I, I just want to point out a couple. first it says it says pure, that godly wisdom is pure, that godly wisdom is a direct reflection of a Of a pure God. A righteous wisdom is a reflection of a righteous God. A God that wants your good. A God that wants you to be righteous. A God that wants you to be obedient. A God that wants to create shalom, is that Old Testament word, for the way things were meant to be, the way God created it to be. That's godly wisdom will create that. Godly wisdom will create shalom, peace, Okay, so he says it's first of all pure, it's peaceable, right? And that word has a connotation of relational peace. So if you follow godly wisdom as you order your universe, as it relates to relationships, they will heal. They will not be fractured. They will not be broken because you will not be driven by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, When you are not driven by selfish ambition, you're able to take a step back and think, what's best for my family, not what's best for me. What's best for my wife, what's best for my husband, not just what's best for me. All of a sudden, you start thinking about your wife and thinking about your husband more than you think about yourself, guess what happens, it's magic. You have a good relationship. It's crazy. If you stop being a selfish jerk, your wife might like you more. It's, pe- it's pure it's peaceable gentle open to reason this this is um, self aware and submissive this is this is a person who um, isn't spineless has an opinion, but if someone um presents to them evidence to the contrary they're able to think very open-mindedly and go yeah that makes sense i i I think you're right we all know what it's like to argue with somebody who's so stubborn that they will never change their mind even when it's become painfully obvious in the conversation that they're wrong but their their desire is not not necessarily to be about truth their desire is to be right so they're they're stubborn and they're not open to reason this happened to me recently in my marriage um, my wife, I've realized, is better like, spatially than I am. So um, what, what used to happen is we'd come out of Ikea, and I was kind of the mule. I would just carry things right um, out, out to the car. And what would happen is I, I would say, well, you get Lily in the car. I'll just put this um, sofa into um <laughs> into the back of our little CRV. And so um, what, what would happen is I'd spend the next 15 minutes just kind of cramming and cramming and cussing and repenting and then cramming some more. And, and, and my wife would come back and go, hey, what if, you, what if you just turned it this way? And I'm like, no, that won't work. It's better if I just step on it. And, and, then, and then she'll go, okay, sweetheart, um, but maybe you should try it. And I'll go, and I'll just go, ding, right? <laughs> And so what, what, I, what I realized is, um, after five years of marriage, um, that I, I should let her um, pack the car, right? I'll, I'll still be the mule that puts it in places because it's heavy, um, but, but she just goes, uh, put that there, okay, honey, uh, put that there, all right, and it, it works, it works. We put an entire living room um, in a trunk once. She's just, she's really good, okay? Okay. Um, So then we get home, and and I'm putting the cribs together, putting beds together, and she just tells me what to do, and I'm I'm screwing and hammering, and it's great. My marriage has been so good for the last two weeks (laughs) since since I realized this. Open to reason. Self-aware. What are you good at? What are you terrible at that someone else can help you? That's godly, that's godly wisdom. That's Nash going. It's, it's better if he scores here, right? So I'll pass. Open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And this is what it produces, verse 18. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Sow peace, reap peace. Sow godly wisdom, reap godly wisdom. Sow joy, reap joy. So satisfaction, reap satisfaction. James is laying it out really simple for us guys. If we follow godly wisdom, our life will be better. Perfect? No. Because you won't always follow godly wisdom. The people around you will not always follow godly wisdom. And this world is steeped in sin and is slowly degrading and and falling apart underneath our feet. So it's not going to be perfect It's not going to all be flowers and rainbows and unicorns, but, but it's, I guarantee you it will be better. You apply godly wisdom to your finances, you will get out of debt and you will be in a better financial position. You apply godly wisdom to your relationships and you will have a better relationship. I I don't mean to go all health and wealth, prosperity gospel on you here. I'm just saying really simply, if you obey God, your life will be better god ordered the universe god made the rules to the universe and then said hey follow these rules and you will live in harmony and peace with the universe the way i created it to be i created relationships to work this way where we love one another consider the others more important than our than ourselves if if everybody does that everybody will have great relationships if you can save your money, be, be thrifty with what you spend it on, if you are generous with your money, things will go good for you financially. That's the promise. It's, it's not rocket science. It's really, really simple. James says, if you follow Satan, it will lead to death. Okay. Um, in Proverbs, Solomon says, there is a way that seems right to a man but its end is the way to death. There's a lot of things that seem to make sense to us where we go, oh yeah, I can see how that sense. I'll just do that. But it's contrary to godly wisdom. It will lead to pain and brokenness and ultimately death. If you don't follow God, it will lead to pain. If you follow godly wisdom, you order your universe according to his principles, I guarantee your life will be better than it is today. Everyone in here is dealing with crap. Crap in relationships, crap in finances, crap at work, whatever it is. You're dealing with trouble and pain and brokenness. And I guarantee you, much of that is coming from you making decisions based on ungodly wisdom. So, I'm going to assume that you are all convinced that godly wisdom is better. The next question would be, how do I get it, right? Um, Solomon said in Proverbs 4, 7, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight, okay? So here, this is Solomon's helpful, helpful proverb. Here's what you do, get wisdom, and uh, get wisdom. Thanks, Saul. All right, three ways we get wisdom, James 1, 2 through 5. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Number one way you can get wisdom, life experience, suffering and pain and trial. Every time we suffer, every time we go through pain, trial, hardship, if we look at it the right way, if we can take a step back and go, what's God teaching me? What got me into this trial? What stupid decision caused this pain? How can I not make that decision again? How can I be aware of the fruit of that decision and actually learn from it? See, most of us, we make a decision, it goes bad. The next time that decision is presented to us, we make the same decision and it goes bad again. And we make the same decision, it goes bad again. And it takes us like 14 times to eventually go, hey, I think that decision leads to pain. And then we do it 10 more times just to prove our hypothesis. And and every single time it leads to pain. Learn the first time. That bad decision leads to that pain. Don't make that bad decision. This pain can cause us to go to people around us who are wiser than us. That that whole idea of being open to reason, part of that is um, acknowledging the fact that other people have experience and insight you don't have. And going to them and going, hey, this is what I'm dealing with. Help me. It takes a level of humility to go, I don't know what to do. Please help godly wisdom. Number two, I don't mean to get all pastoral on you here, read your Bible, pray. Every day, get up, read your Bible, pray. Then go to work, go to school, whatever you do, go home, eat, go to sleep, wake up the next morning, read your Bible, and pray. And then the next day, Read your Bible and pray. And then read your Bible and pray. And then. This is the ABCs, the one, two, threes of the Christian life. This is the most simple thing that we as disciples of Jesus ought to be doing. You cannot follow godly wisdom if you do not know godly wisdom. This is godly wisdom. Read the Bible, believe the Bible, submit to what the Bible says, and then do it. That's godly wisdom. That's ordering your life. That's anchoring your soul in the word of God every day. I, 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 I get counseling appointment after counseling appointment after counseling appointment. My dad, Pastor Tim, who does most of our counseling here, I guarantee you of the people that come into our lives and have real issues going on in their life, maybe one out of 10, maybe One out of ten reads their Bible every morning, prays every morning. Maybe. Anchor your soul in the word of God. Anchor your life. Know what godly wisdom is before you can act with godly wisdom. Number three, know the one who is wisdom. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. Solomon says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. It says that before you can get wisdom, you have to fear God. Now, we we know, I I hope by now we know, that when the Old Testament talks about fearing God, it doesn't mean be afraid of God like God's a bear wanting to eat us, um, but stand in awe of God. That God is big, God is creator, God is sustainer, God is divine, God's God, and we're not God. That we should, in the presence of God, fear God, be in awe of God, worship and glorify God. Now, most of us don't do this. Most of us aren't in awe of God. Most of us don't fear God. Because your God is not awesome. Your God is not fearful. Your God is barely a God. The God that you profess may be the God of the Bible, but the way you interact with God is more of a peer, more of a counselor. He gives pithy advice. You decide whether or not to take it. But there is nothing awesome and powerful about God. Here's here's the question you can answer um, that will give you a really clear picture of how big your God is. Do you serve a God that can tell you no? do you believe in a God who can ever tell you no? When you set your heart, I'm going to do that, and God's word clearly says, no, you should not do that, who wins? When you say, this is right, and God says, that's wrong, who wins? When you say, I should do this with my life, this makes sense to me. Hey, we can move in together, it's just one rent instead of two rents. We can save money, we could get one car, we could just see each other all the time, it'll really help our relationship. You say, this makes a lot of sense, and God goes, that's deeply and profoundly foolish. Who wins? Can God tell you you're wrong? Can God tell you no? If you have an idea, a political idea, a social idea, hey, we should be able to do this. People should be able to do that. It's their own body. And God says, no, who wins? You say, well, they should be able to do whatever they want. They love each other. And God says, no, who wins? Do you serve a God who can ever tell you no? Or do you serve a God who gives you advice and you kind of go, well, um, that's kind of outdated, God. God. God's kind of old-fashioned, and I'm, I'm kind of here to update God into the 21st century. See, because that kind of God is not very awesome. That, that kind of God does not inspire fear or awe. That kind of God really is not God. You are bigger than God in that scenario. You are more powerful than God in that scenario. Honestly, if we can just be honest with ourselves, you are God in that scenario if if you can tell God no God can't correct you what you think is right about the world what makes sense to you in this world is right and if God disagrees he's wrong stop calling him God he's your lapdog he's your friend he's your peer he's your buddy you like him when he's encouraging but when he's kind of mean and tells you don't do something it's marginalized That's not God. There's no reason to fear that God. Therefore, if you do not fear God, you will never submit to godly wisdom because you don't look at God and go, God, you're God, and I'm not God. You're divine, and I'm I'm natural. You, You are wise and infinite, and I am finite and have... 31 years of experience, um, you are in charge, I am not. Therefore, what you say is right, I will believe. What you say is wise, I will believe is wise. And what you say is foolish, I will believe is foolish. Therefore, I will order my life based on your wisdom, not what seems right to me. That will produce wisdom in us. That will allow us to begin to order our lives based on what he says is important and what he says is good and what he says is right. And I promise, because the Bible promises, it will result in peace. It will result in shalom. It will be closer and closer and closer to the way God intended it to be. In... in In verse 15, James says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. And I think that's an interesting way to say it in light of the fact that Jesus, who we call the word, the logos, the wisdom, came down from above, not only taught true wisdom, not only lived true wisdom, but actually did the most godly, wise thing ever, sacrificing himself so that many might be saved. Think about that. Think about the wisdom that Christ employed. This this self-forgetful, self, I mean, just this this unbelievably humble wise moment where jesus took a back seat and said it's not about me living it's about the opportunity for many to live so i will sacrifice myself for the sake of something greater is that not the very apex of godly wisdom To be able to take a back seat and say it's not about me, it's about us, it's about bigger picture, it's about community, it's about the kingdom of God, it's about the will of God, and I will sacrifice myself for something bigger. That's wisdom. The wisdom that came down from above to teach us to be an example and to do the most godly and wise thing of all time. The fear of the Lord begins there, to be in awe of Jesus Christ on the cross to be in awe of the selflessness, the humility, the meekness of God himself willingly being sacrificed for the sake of rebellious people, knowing that it would produce grace, it would produce salvation for millions and millions and millions of God's people. That's beautiful. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the story that your life tells, the story of the Bible, every piece of it speaks of you, your perfect creation, as we know from John 1 that not anything was created that wasn't created through you, the need for you that we see at the fall, the reality of sin and pain and destruction that created our desperate need for a Savior, the redemption that we see on the cross, how you came as not only a purveyor of wisdom, not only an example of wisdom, but the very means by which we might follow in your footsteps, following godly wisdom. And then the hope, the promised future, where we will once again experience the shalom, the perfection, the intention that you had for the universe. Lord, in the midst of that, in between redemption and restoration, I pray, Lord, that we would follow your example, looking to you each and every day in the scriptures. We would anchor our soul to your word, knowing and believing that godly wisdom leads to peace, to righteousness, to perfection, to satisfaction in a a deep and profound way that worldly wisdom cannot provide. I pray this in your son's name